Welcome to this episode of HyperTalks. I'm Nora. And I'm Carl. We had this time had the pleasure of talking to Eileen Savka. Eileen is American, but based in Stockholm, and she works as a communication consultant and creativity coach. She has now been at Hyper Island for some weeks, teaching our digital business class in presentation skills and creativity. In this episode of HyperTalks, we dive more into the topics of presentation, teaching and creativity. Eileen will give us unique stories from her life, ranging from when she grew up in Chicago to when she moved to Stockholm and ended up teaching the Swedish crown princess. Enjoy! HyperTalks 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 Well, I'm Eileen Rosenzweig Safka, born in Chicago, grew up in Chicago and moved to a suburb when I was seven. I was just crazy about school. I love school. It's really hard to look back and think what are the important things that have molded one. You know, I grew up in an America where women never worked. Middle class, upper middle class, lower middle class, they didn't work. So the idea why I wanted to be such a good student, I can sort of wonder. I think it was the question of, you thought if you were a good student, your parents would be even happier than they were. I really enjoyed school. Mm. And the idea is that um, after you graduate from high school, that you would go on to college and get an education, and then you would get married and live happily ever after. That was the picture of the world at that time, which, of course, isn't the America from today. So it is quite interesting when you look back on having had a life of so many interesting different careers, and that was never the intention. It just unfolded like that. And that's what's amazing, and, and my, my peers as well. Everybody ended up working with interesting things. Uh, when Actually, when we knew each other in high school, we just were educating ourselves for the housewife sort of life, period. I always had the picture in, in this in this picture-perfect vision I had that it would include going to Europe for a year. You get an education, so you've got, you know, you're an educated person. Then I would go to Europe for a summer, and then I would come back and maybe work a year, maybe not, and then it was this happily ever after, the green pastures, you know. And I just had uh, finished... When I graduated, I had a from the University of Wisconsin. I had a Bachelor of Science degree in education, mm -hmm. and then I had a degree in English mm -hmm. and history and a, um, a teaching certificate for English okay. and history. Mm -hmm. Never thinking I was going to work with it, actually. That was just what I had. Then I was working with a fantastic program that President Kennedy started. It was what they called Office for Economic Opportunity okay. for mini minority groups that were between the ages of 15 and 25 years old that had had a difficult time in their life. Most were coming from prisons, orphanages, the streets. Put them together on the university campus and give them housing and a second chance to get a high school education and diploma to do whatever we could so that they would learn what would be appropriate for them. You can't take a 24-year-old who's been in prison for four years and put them in a normal high school. It wouldn't work. So this was very individual sensitive. And it was a very interesting team of teachers. Mm -hmm. 
coming from different walks of life. I remember we had one who was an American Indian. We had yeah different people, and I was included there. So looking back and having seen a little bit about educational systems, this was really a free-for-all. As a teacher, you had full responsibility. I was in charge of the English department to make sure that one way or the other, they were able to pass all their high school exams in English. I had many thrilling moments in this, and especially because they were coming from such uh, unusual backgrounds for me. Hmm. It's quite interesting. If I'm 22 years old, at 22, yeah, and I have a group of eight black guys Hmm. or eight Indians Hmm. who have an experience of something that I'll never, ever (laughs) catch up with, it didn't take me long to realize I needed some alternative teaching methods. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, the one that comes to mind, I have one that comes to mind immediately. I had a group of these eight really, really cool, cool and cool, you know, guys. But as soon as I'd come in the room, they would start with the uh, making comments, Hmm. you know, like, oh, wow, I know where you were Saturday night, this kind of thing. I mean, they just made it up. So you always, you didn't dare turn your back on them to write something on the board because you'd get a comment. Okay. So I suddenly thought... I have got to do something to show them that I really respect them Mm -hmm. and listen to them, and hopefully that will turn things around for me. So I got the idea that I would bring a tape recorder one day, and I said I wanted each one of them to talk to me. Like a a radio program. That's interesting. Maybe that's why I thought of it. Like a radio. They got the mic, and they were to stand up one at a time and tell me their story or tell a story. And one after the other, they told the most amazing you know, there would be a prison experience, it would be a prison escape, it was a car escape <laughs> for the police, I mean, you know. <laughs> and um, and they really enjoyed it. You could see they liked taking command of the mic and they had things to say, and I just listened. Then sometimes as a, a teacher, you realize that maybe you'd made a mistake. The last guy who hadn't spoken yet, his name was Lewis, and he was the type of I used to think of him like Ferdinand the Bull. He was this peaceful, calm, harmonic guy, sort of like a daydreamer. He'd be sitting there, was just daydreaming during the day, so unlike the other guys. And he was the last one to take the microphone. And he stood up and he held that mic and he starts rocking and not saying a word. And, and I kind of panic, thinking he probably has nothing to say. And Louis, his name was Lewis. He's rocking. And all of a sudden he starts making guttural sounds from his throat. That's just sounds. And then it sounds like music. And then he breaks out in a kind of a rhythmic, guttural music that nobody ever heard. You know, it was just, but it was gorgeous. It was really beautiful. And all the other guys loved it. And they start going, you do it, Lewis. Come on, babe. You do it, Lewis. And they start clapping their hands. And Lewis is doing this, whatever it was that you'd never heard. It was like a guttural gospel from the throat. And and Lewis is up there (laughs) rocking and all the guys are clapping. And suddenly this Lewis that was the daydreamer he put himself on their map and he developed in a whole new direction after, afterwards. So that was a thrilling moment as a teacher. And that one, I thought, wow, this was, this was really fun. So I saw these things happening in different classrooms. And after a year, the government decided they had no money for the program because I think Vietnam was taking too much money, mm. at which point I was real upset with my country, <laughs> thinking that America is the only country in the world where there's discrimination, where there's racism, where... Oh, and I had a whole list of complaints against America. But I realized that as an American, you're so isolated, I didn't really know what went on in the rest of the world. I mean, what do we know? So I decided I would go to Europe 
for a summer and just look around and just experience how other countries worked. Mm-hmm. So the, the short of the long story is I went for a trip to Europe <laughs> and never went home again. I ended up in Sweden because I came as a tourist, met some people that had a flat that they were renting out for $12 a month that looked like a couple. $12, 60 crowns a month. I met a couple. I met a couple. And they told me that they had a couple, a, a, a flat they rented out secondhand. And it was in, in Gothenburg in Haga, which mm-hmm. was a very, and in these days they didn't have in these flats I'd never seen anything like it. No indoor plumbing. Oh, you had just cold running water in a hole in the kitchen wall. <laughs> Toilets were outhouses. They had no shower. You only had kakulun, you know, the furnaces, yeah. and nothing else. And, of course, this was a beautiful day in September. I thought, isn't that fun? And I lived there for two and a half years. Really? <laughs> yeah. You know, which was a culture shock all the way. Adaptable. <laughs> yeah, adaptable. And... um then I, people, I went to the laundromat one of the first days mm. and met some Americans. I usually avoided Americans when I traveled because you wanted to meet people from countries. But they told me that they had a friend who was an American who walked off of a job. And they needed an American who had different uh, studies from the university. And I had those. So they said, well, why don't you apply for the job? So I went as a bit of a joke. Mm. And I applied, and during the interview, they happened to ask me. It, the job was to polish texts of important documents and put it into very good English because they'd been translated from all different languages in very poor hmm. English and, oh. and to make it very American. Okay. So I thought, all right. And then they asked me in the interview, do you know anything about cameras? And I said, yes. I said, yes, because I'd had a brownie instamatic when I was six years old. <laughs> <laughs> no, I was seven years old. Yeah, I had a brownie instamatic. And they didn't ask me anything else. I get the job, and it turned out that my number one client, I've, I've told this to many of you who have asked me privately. Um, I haven't heard it. Okay. That I, my first, my, my big client was Hasselblad, the camera, Hasselblad, the camera that had just gone to the moon in 69, right? Mm. And they wanted me to rewrite the instruction manual for the Hasselblad 500. Really? Yeah. <laughs> and I have only clicked on an automatic Maybe that's why I'm so afraid of technical things today. This is, this is beginning to fall into place now. That's where <laughs> Actually, it Yeah, that's true. So this is where it started. Yeah. That's why I don't like to push buttons. So Hasselblad himself, you know, the company, they gave me the, the 500 to sit at my desk and push buttons on it and write. I mean, of course, I've got the, the uh, other languages yeah. and I have poor descriptions, but they wanted it to be Americanized. And I sat at, with this terrible, you know, pushing buttons and writing and pushing buttons and writing. And then I had never seen a computer. This wasn't the computer they had, but it was, I was good at typing mm-hmm. that I could do. But this was a huge machine, like half of a wall. And you, you would type, you would do things and things would roll out of here and roll out of there. I mean, it was completely mad. And I hated it to sit there for hours and think, is, is it better to say in or on or at, you know? And all I can see in front of me is a spaceship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A spaceship desk. <laughs> it was like that. That was a very good comparison. Yeah. And the funny thing was, is this couple that had the, this company, they had two Siamese cats. They loved cats, so they had Siamese cats. And these cats were their children, and the cats were permitted to do anything. 
so the cats could pounce on the machine. No. And when they pounced wrong, things would start rolling and things would disappear and things would, it was, it was like a spaceship with the two mad cats running around. Seriously. It gets so strange images in my head. No, it was absolutely mad. And this was another one of my jobs. They were involved in cat, what do they call it? Cat contests around the, Europe. European <laughs> cat, shows, like? cat shows. Yeah. And I was to categorize, not categorize, make a catalog of all the cats from Europe and who had won prizes and put it into some sort of system. Maybe that's why I don't like the systems. <laughs> here, here we go. Do you know a lot about cats? or did you? No. <laughs> it was all written down on papers about which cats had, had how many points against them and with them and their different, you know, why they got marked down or marked up. And the names of the cats were unbelievably crazy. And and then they'd get a minus point, but they had a little knot in their tail, or you know. So I had to sit there writing with this crazy spaceship machine and put things into order, and then and then they would print it out, and you have these booklets of the cat, you know, the cat results yeah. from the different contests around Europe. So between that and Hasselblad, that I completely went nuts and really hated it. Then at the same time, people told me they needed help at the British Institute. I started teaching courses. And then they needed help in the mental hospital in Lillehagen because they wanted courses working with film and poetry and arts and speaking English. So, so things just came. Mm -hmm. You just like... So I just fell into things. Into, yeah, fell yeah, I just fell into yeah. things. I never planned anything. It was always the question, when will I go home? I'll go home soon. Well, this would come up. Oh, how interesting. Okay, I'll do that. And I kept thinking I would pick up Swedish on the, you know, on the streets mm -hmm. and so forth. Well, my job was in English. Nobody spoke to me on the streets. So I'd never learned Swedish. So I thought, well, if I'm going to learn Swedish, I, you know, I, I better do it. So mm -hmm. I applied to a course at the university. And if you pass that in one term, if you pass that course, then you would be able to study anything in Swedish at the university in one term. So from going, not knowing any Swedish at all and learning enough to pass the oral and written exams, in one term. It was probably the hardest course I've ever taken. When I look back sometimes and think, how did I ever get there? And how did I ever make that switch? It's all been following a gut feeling and then going for it. Is that the wisdom works we're going to yeah, take so. with us? I think it's when I had an idea... I don't know where the ideas would come from. I'd get an idea and I'd think... I couldn't quite let go of it. I wouldn't quite be calm until I'd actually done the idea. It's not like I have Burma on my brain now. <laughs> <laughs> At one point, I had Sri Lanka on my brain mm -hmm. and didn't even really know where it was, to tell you the truth. But I knew I had to go. And I went there and had probably the most amazing, one of the most amazing years of my life and a total career change, mm -hmm. and which I worked with for 10, 15 years. I mean, it was just really an unexpected gift <laughs> just because I followed that, that thought. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Cool. What What made you interested in like public speaking and communication from the beginning? No, nothing. Um, <laughs> I think I've told some of you this as well. Have asked. I was very shy in, as a, a child in school. A bit of an introvert. Just cared about my grades. I loved the studies. As all Americans, we have to get up and give reports. I was so shy when I, I graduated from Nutria High School in Wetnefka outside Chicago. And at that time, it was considered one of America's top high schools because they divided. It wasn't a private school, but...
but it divided each subject into five levels. You were either a genius down to an idiot. Mm. So you competed with those at your level. So it was quite tough. I think we were 5,000 students in the high school. It was big. So I worked really hard, and then when I graduated, I did very well. I didn't go to my own graduation because I was too embarrassed to go up on stage and get my own diploma. Just walk up and walk down. Didn't go. They sent it home to me. Oh, really? Then five years later at the university, didn't go to my own graduation. Had the, you know which is quite interesting. First year, I've told this to many who have asked, first year at the university, we had to have speech. It was obligatory. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, I never would have chosen it. So I had speech and wanted to do a, you know, a good job, which I did. And then they were having a, some kind of speech competitions between universities. And my teacher selected me to be the one to represent this particular university. And that was a nightmare. Can you imagine if you didn't even want to go on stage and get your own diploma? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, and I told, I think many of you have asked this, how did I end up, <clears throat> right? Yeah. The fear of having, first I wasn't competitive with anything except myself anyway. Yeah. And the only thing I ever wanted to back out of in school is when they had sports days when you had to do the running events and high jumping and long jumping with your parents watching in the whole school. So my mother would sometimes write a letter that I was ill and couldn't go. That's the only time I ever, as we say, played hooky. I didn't yeah. go. Hmm? So the and speaking actually did? Well, no, and then, then I didn't want to do that either, okay. of course. So the reaction that I had, I was so upset. I mean, I was really upset. I worked myself up. I couldn't sleep nights. I remember I was just worrying how it, they were going to send me around the country to compete in giving speeches. <laughs> so I got the worst case of mononucleosis. That's Schuttelfeber ever reported oh. in the entire oh, state. Yes. That was that. <laughs> so I was put in the hospital for for weeks in the intensive care because I yeah, and I didn't have to do it. I missed it. <laughs> you know, so they had to get somebody else. So that was my background with speech in, the, in that sense. And then this sounds a bit crazy, but after having had different careers, went to Spain, bought this business, lost all the money. Came back to Sweden, and at this point I thought, well, I hadn't lived with... Uh, by this time I'm a parent with two children uh, of my own and a, and a foster daughter as well. And I needed a job right away. I didn't want to go back. I'd lived in 10 years for, in Vestervik as well. Mm-hmm. Didn't want to go back to Vestervik. Wanted to come to Stockholm where I didn't have any contacts with what I'd been working with before, mm-hmm. previously. So I just sat with a telephone catalog... And just called up and down everything that looked like a school. And I didn't know one school from the other. It's July. And nobody answers the telephone in July. (laughs) Anybody. (laughs) So, you know, it was just an answering service or nothing. And then I called this one school. No idea where it was, but it was Stockholm. And and a voice answered. Oh. Hmm? Yes, this is Lars Hedin. And, you know, and Quilliam Nauseat. I thought this is a live person on the and I, and I started with, I'm actually educated as an English teacher. I didn't say that I'd never really worked as an English teacher, but, you know, I was a, an English teacher <laughs> from America, from a, a known university that was had a very well-known English department, right? <laughs> as well as a Bachelor of Science degree. So I thought, well, this would be good. And he said, we have enough teachers, and we're very pleased with the teachers we have. <laughs> so I thought, well, you know, it was my only chance to keep him on the line. So I said, well, nobody teaches like I do. Ooh. So you can and, sell yourself. Well, right. I, yeah. I didn't know what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. In the interim, I, I must just add that before this, 
before I left for Spain, this is also it's still in the 70s, I wanted to take a doctorate in, um, I wanted to, yeah, have a PhD in American and English literature. Mm-hmm. But when I went to the university in Sweden, they said that they wanted all of my English courses to have been taken in Sweden, not in America. So I said, it would be oh, more sure. valuable that my credits in English would be in Sweden instead of American. They said yes. So I wasn't going to do that. So I took a degree instead. Like, you had to be a teacher or an actor, and you could take a course in what they call dramatique. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I did that just for a year. And then I was very interested in physical theater and had like an experimental group I worked with for a year or two just for fun. Like we trained, mm-hmm. I think, 16 hours a week. And then I started during that time working with business English Mm one-on-one. It was a different kind of a preparation for for Swedes that needed to be specialized in a certain type of English for working abroad in their profession. Uh, mm -hmm. So it was uh, a bit different. Uh, But anyway, so I came back to Stockholm, like I said, and started, um, uh, spoke with this, Mm -hmm. and he said to me, come in and speak to our English teachers, which I thought wouldn't work because they were all Swedish. And who wants to have an English teacher who is American? I mean, since it's my native tongue, and I do have a degree in it. Mm-hmm. So I went, and they were very positive and very nice. I liked them a lot. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we don't really have a teaching position for you in that sense, but would you be here once a week as a consultant? Okay, that was a, a start with mm-hmm. something. Yeah. And at the same time, I had a few other things with other places. So I went there the first uh, time. And there was a very tiny group, maybe about eight students, and there was a teacher watching me at the back of the room. Tell you about this? Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. haven't heard it. Okay. Now, a few of you have asked me this before. Mm-hmm. It sounds like such a crazy story, but that's mm-hmm. why I'm here, why mm-hmm. I ever developed any of my teaching. And, uh, you know, and I had a, a le- they called it speech. They wanted me to teach speech in English, so I did it. I had the first lesson, and the teacher who was watching, observing me, came up, and she said, well, as you notice, you have Crown Princess Victoria, and that's why you're here, so that she'll be good at speech in English. Now, if there is a terror attack on this building, you have to push this button on the wall. That means all of Stockholm's area will be blockaded, and I think the helicopters are going to land on the roof. I don't know, but she said, don't do it unless it's necessary, because it'll be very expensive. <laughs> she had the Crown Prince Victoria yeah. and 700 students. Yeah, 700 it started like that. Okay. I mean, I didn't recognize anybody, because... I'd been living in Spain, and I'd live. I mean, I I don't know anything about any of these public figures in Sweden. Okay. You know, I don't think I had had. I'd never even had a TV in Sweden until this time. Seriously, so so I didn't recognize her. So she, for me, she was just another student. And I, I need to ask you: Did you ever push the button? No. Okay. But I made sure I never stood near that wall. Okay. <laughs> I stayed far away because I'm so clumsy. So I stayed far away from that wall. And then what happened was the other students heard mm-hmm. about this course. Then everybody wanted this course. So it just went poof. And then I decided when you have students at that age in high school, it's such a sensitive age, and you know that you're going to be on the spot and you suddenly have to be good at speech in English, I asked the principal, please, I don't want this to be called speech. I want it mm-hmm. to be called creative communication, ah. which begins with knowing who you are, daring to be who you are, and able to do it in a personal and a professional way. That's how it started. So I started to think, what do these students need? And mostly it's just to believe in themselves. And I was given free reigns to create whatever I wanted, and then they wanted me to eventually have all the students in the school once a week. It was 26 groups 
of different students every week and no books. The only rules in my classroom were you only speak English and you never laugh at anybody. You only laugh mm. with them. Mm. And then I just was able to actually play myself and find what could I do? Because I didn't know. I had had my experience with the drama, which was all about just being creative. Mm. I was an English teacher, even mm. though I hadn't really worked in a school. <laughs> and I had done a lot of other different things. So we did all sorts of things together where we only spoke English. And then, of course, also enhanced their, their English because I said, I don't care about the grammar. I don't care about the pronunciation. I care about... Did you get your point across? Mm. Do we remember you? Do we remember what you wanted to say? Mm. Did we understand it the way you wanted? And we did amazing things together. Mm. We had I took them on trips. We did silent retreats in the country. We, <laughs> we did everything from meditation to yoga to nightclubs at night and wrote about it to, you know. So, but you, so you would say that you have sort of shaped your, your way of teaching yeah. throughout the years. Yeah, and through that at, the, at this uh, high school. Mm. And then what happened was somebody said, oh, you should be doing things in the corporate world with this. I said, they're not going to be interested in this. Oh, yes, they would. So somehow a friend of mine put me in this uh, t um, an engineering company, and they liked it. And then a mother called me and wanted to meet me from the school. I thought, oh, I've never been criticized, you know. But a mother wanted to meet me, and it turned out, that she and her husband had lived in, in uh, on Capitol Hill in America mm. with some project, and she had been part of a speech academy. Uh, the, the, like the, it was called the Speakers Institute of Capitol Hill, something like that. <laughs> it was an eight-week program, and they were looking for an American who could teach it. So they thought, <laughs> well, it, I think it was for female bosses at SAF, the Swedish... Okay. Yeah, SAF. So they told me what the outline of what they had done in America, and they wanted to start a sister, a sister branch here. And I was to teach that. So then I focused more on the speech mm. and the communication. Mm. So this is the thing. thing. One thing led to another. Then one person in that group, this is quite funny, they wanted me, uh, after a couple of years of doing that, she said, oh, would you have a course at Rosenbaud? And I didn't know what Rosenbaud was. And I asked, well, where is it? They said, Drottnigatan. And Drottnigatan. And I thought, and I had been at that time swimming at Central, bought it. <laughs> so I thought it was a bathhouse. And I think, I don't want to have a course in a bathhouse. Uh, you, know? uh, you see, Rosenbaud. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you don't know what Rosenbaud is, you yeah. think it's a bath It's mm -hmm. a it's a bath place, a swimming place. Yeah. So it turns out <coughs> it's part of the government. I don't know what you'd call it in English. Probably parliament. government. No, parliament. Yeah. 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 Or is it the government? Yeah. Government. I mean, this is how yeah. one thing led to another. Yeah. So I go there and they wanted me to have a course mm. for the parliament and how, together with uh, a Jan Larsson, who was the prime minister, uh, Jan Persson's press secretary. And they wanted me, the two of us, to have a course on changing the image of somebody. How do you mm. change an image? He felt that he had done this with the prime minister, and my part was just about being creative with your communication. Mm. Yeah. So I was to meet with this Jean Larson and put together this day for Rosenbaud, which we did, which was really fun. Then at the end of that, Jan Larson said to me, I think you should have a Rom of Tal with UD. Well, I had no idea what Rom of Tal was. I didn't know what he was. So he gives me a name and a contact. 
And then I contacted them. I mean, this is how it's done. I've never needed a whip. I've never had anything. I didn't even have a business card. So he sends me off to UD. So I have this course with them. And uh, that was really interesting. And he said, don't think that you can win them over because they're not an easy bunch. <laughs> and that went really well. Yeah, so they were an easy bunch. or Well, I didn't have a hard time with them, okay. no. There were about 50, 60 of them. Yeah. No, it, it was okay. It was good. Yeah, I was thinking of leading you um, in the direction we talked about because uh, now we've been here and we've done presentation skills and um, done a lot of different things. Um, and most many of those things are based on neuro... Linguistic programming. Yes. Not or the, you're not... Yeah. yeah. Actually, not the ones to do with presentations no? directly, no. From neuro-linguistic programming, I'd also had a very clear idea about body language, having mm. been interested in mime and physical theater. I th- Let me just try and think now. It's hard to think back how it all fell into place. I think, with the, well, yeah, with yeah. the, I think with the NLP, what mm. I realized was the percentage of mm. our attention that is in the nonverbal communication. Mm. That it is such a huge part of what people are, how they're assessing you, or consciously or subconsciously. Mm-hmm. I also realize the power of the subconscious. I realize that people think that they're making their decisions from a very, you know, logical point of view, and often it's very much a gut feeling, and the gut feeling is very much all the impressions that are being stored in your brain that you're not even aware of. Mm-hmm. That I got from the NLP. Also, how different brains work on different gears in terms of their priority of being visual, auditive, kinesthetic, as we mm. talked about. Yes. Yeah. Word power. I was aware of word power as an English major, mm. but not in terms of us coding our world according to our senses and how powerful that is when it's used in the right way. Yeah. And then, of course, being interested in, in speech, mm. looking at what are, looking at all the famous speeches, what are the things that really drive people home, mm. both in the written word and actually looking at them. So I had also many experiences with that when things just worked. Mm. And I could see that using the correct grammar had very little to do with the power and the impression of the, of the speech. Mm. It was very much... The nonverbal communication, it was word choices that really hit home for different people. So NLP is that, um, what, what is it, if you can explain it like in okay. two sentences? Or? Oh, that's very true. There's so many <laughs> aspects probably. of it. Oh. <laughs> it was developed by two men, one Grinder and Bandler, and mm. they were coming from a background of computers, actually, I think in California. Mm. And they wondered why some people are so successful and others aren't. So they started what they call modeling Mm. of people living or not and looking at what were their basic beliefs, what were their belief systems and how do they make strategies for living according to their... You have beliefs and from that you get your values and from your values you make strategies for living. So they would study people like everybody from Walt Disney to Leonardo da Vinci, hmm. I mean, all these people, and, and, and trying to figure out what pushed them and, and how did they excel according to their basic beliefs. And how can you sort of understand that? A lot of the things we did in class, this idea of building rapport, that is NLP for me. 
There are other aspects of NLP that I do not like and will not work with. Mm. One is something called language patterning, okay. where you can almost get people to do anything according to the way you present the mm. question or the statement. Mm. Mm. So I don't think that's ethical, so I don't mm. work with that. So if you, rapport, if you just uh, explain that again to the people that don't know no, what it is. Mm. Mm-hmm. With some people, you meet them, and you immediately say, ah, I feel like I've already known, I, I've known you forever. Mm. And other people, you might have known them forever, and you feel you don't know them. Mm. The same situation that I told you, if you're in the kitchen with people you've never met before, you can make a dinner, and it just works yeah. really well. It just mm. unfolds, and... And it's just fun. And mm. somebody can be your best friend, as it is in my mm. case sometimes. <laughs> and you keep bumping into each other. It doesn't work. It, it you know, yeah. you don't dance the same dance. Mm. So rapport is when you feel immediately that you have an, a mutual understanding. Mm. You have the same rhythm. A sense of unity. The same goals. It just works. You know, it just works. There's a, a sense of team or a sense of... Uh, Of, that, no, of knowing, of knowing, and it just works out. And that can be created. Or it, it can it, be created. Yeah. Yes. If, if you, I don't think you need to worry about it no. long, as long as things are working. But when you're in a situation and the communication isn't working, mm. then it's time to look at what are the types of body languages that person uses. What is the level of their voice? Mm. What sort of word choices do they use? And if you can. Put yourself in it so that they don't feel that talking to you is like talking to somebody who's very different from themselves. Mm. Somebody who's very calm when they're speaking. If you're jumping all over the place, mm. they probably will not open that door to communication with you. Mm. Yeah. And somebody who's very um, energetic, <laughs> you know. So in other words, you you tend to move towards people that are very sim- similar to you. Mm. In the long run, it's kind of a pity because often we learn most from those that are at least like us. <laughs> those are those are our teachers usually. Yeah. 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 So I would also like to ask you if you would give us three advice, like our class, digital business class, where we are now, two months into our program. Three advice, advices that are uh, I don't know, life advices, not career or anything. But what should we do? Ah, uh, in life in general. Yeah. Yeah. Never underestimate the power of a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> When you get in certain... This is really just coming, what's coming, right? Love it. Yeah. All right. When you get in a situation where you really feel stuck and you really feel like everything's against you, you feel I've got nowhere to run, nowhere to hide, sometimes those are... You should thank those situations or those people because it gives you a chance. There's only one way to get out of it, and that's to rise above. Mm. You have to develop on this level, straight mm. up. You can't go around it, can't go under it, can't go around. You know, you just that's have to right. sort of take yourself and put yourself on your best level or even above your best level. I don't know how you want to. You might. Some people might call it your own spiritual development. Mm. Some people might call it just being the best you can and be there for mm. yourself. Mm. Because ultimately, that's what you have in the end is yourself. Mm. That would be advice number two. Mm. And number three, I'm going to go with uh, something that Oren Lyons said, the Indian chief. He's the American Indian who got American Indian rights accepted in the United Nations. Because before that, Indians were not considered a population. Mm. They were like a nobody. And he's a very interested guy. And he's come to Sweden many times. I mentioned him to one group here. 
when he met uh, some of my students. But uh, he also says, don't forget, life is to be enjoyed. Since you're, you're, you're teaching about speeching and public speeching, do you have anyone that you adore when it comes to uh, and why? That's a good question. Yes. <gasps> Yeah, I have to say, I'm I'm sorry that's going to be so obvious, but it's Obama. Yeah. Uh, Partly because he is a natural speaker. Mm -hmm. He he ticks the boxes of all the things we've talked about. Yeah. Great pausing. Mm -hmm. He can go from being very serious to breaking out laughing if somebody says something something funny. He's very present. He he gives the impression, even those those who don't like his politics, they like him as a person. Which is very interesting as well. Is it good at the auditive, kinetic, the different? Yeah, I think he's he's always Mm -hmm. he he does the power of threes. Mm -hmm. He does the power of repetition. Mm -hmm. He does the amazing using words Mm -hmm. that awaken his senses, and his sense of total presence and sincerity in whatever he's talking about. Mm -hmm. You don't have the feeling that he's trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And I was just by coincidence had read his books before. He had even become a senator. He wrote a book about his search for identity. Mm-hmm. And it's so well written. I mean, he's not going to have somebody else write it. He's so well written. And then when he became a senator, he had the preface of a new book saying, if I had known I was going to be a senator, <laughs> I never would have been this open in my book. <laughs> you know? And then there he is, the president. You see what I mean? So you have the feeling that you've been able to follow him. before. Yeah. Just his search for who he was. Yeah. Which everybody is doing. Mm. Everybody's searching for who am I? The honesty. Yes. As well. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I had a real experience. I think the speech that he gave that was the most thrilling for me was actually I went to the movies last year on my own and I went to see the movie Selma, mm-hmm. which is the story of the blacks mm-hmm. and Martin Luther King's marching over the cell in Selma, Alabama, the mm. bridge for the blacks' rights to vote, mm. which they had the legal possibility, but they at the voting polls, they made it impossible. And when they had this march over the bridge, they were shot, many of them. So Selma was put on the map because of this terrible fight. And in the film, you have even Oprah Winfrey. Oh. And it's an incredibly well-done film. So I'm at the movies. I see this, which made an impression on me. My my mother always volunteered in Chicago uh, as a volunteer for improving the housing areas for the black areas. But is it this a documentary? This is a documentary. Yeah. No, it's it's there. There are actors in okay. it, but it's a true story. Mm. It's Mar- it, it's known as the March Over Selma Bridge that Martin Luther King led. And many people got killed, but mm. eventually it led to the blacks having the right to vote. Okay, okay. okay. so it's quite a story. Mm. So I get home on my own, quite touched by the story. I put on CNN, mm. which is another addiction. Mm. And then I, I'm listening to this, and what do I see right in front of me? There is Obama standing on the same bridge in Selma, no. not realizing it was a celebration of an anniversary from what had happened at that march. And there is Obama on the bridge. The same, they haven't touched the bridge. It's like a monument today. Giving the speech of his career, I think, if you listen to that speech, it is like Martin Luther King's speech, I have a dream. Mm. Oh. And even I heard the commentary afterwards about his speech. That That is the speech that 
to end all of his speeches. I mean, it was okay. so good. So that, that, that would be my speech ideal guy. We'll Google that. Then. Yeah. We should have something to strive for. <laughs> yeah. And when you find it, send it to me. <laughs> I will, I promise. Okay, good. <laughs> Um, that must be a moving experience, like seeing yeah. the film and then going Such home. Such a coincidence. <laughs> I mean, it, and, you know, it's the kind of thing you just want to stand to your apartment and just jump up and down and scream, thinking, "Who can I call?" It sounds ridiculous. It was late at night now, and just, I mean, ha, ha, is that powerful or what? Amazing. So, <laughs> uh, I would ask now the concluding questions. There's two questions in one. So the, tomorrow is your last day, ending of the six weeks for now. Mm -hmm. um, so my question to you is, how do you feel about that? And is there something else you want to talk or say, tell, have on your heart that you need to share? Like I think I mentioned uh, to you today that I was thinking in the beginning when I've only had like a week and then it was two weeks maybe with a break in between. And when they wanted to schedule me, I thought... Because it is a lot of energy that goes mm. out here. Yeah, <laughs> it takes me an hour to get here, an hour to get home. I drag my stuff around. I look for my stuff. You know, I I worry about people getting there on time. I, I drive myself crazy about getting the the technical world to to uh, fall into line. You know, so I think, wow, well, how am I going to do six weeks? And and then in the last week there was another teacher that that I wanted to have one week free. And then another teacher, that's the only time it could work. So I put in that week as well. So I was thinking, how will I keep my energy up? Because I want to really be present. I want to walk my talk. And I know for myself, to be really present in my life, I need to spend a lot of time alone. That's mm -hmm. how I balance it. And um, so I'm thinking, mm -hmm. oh boy, I wonder if on six weeks, that's going to be quite a test, you know. <laughs> I don't know about that. And, so I thought, and it has been a total delight. So now I was thinking, instead of thinking about what am I going to do, how am I going to manage, because you guys are so great, it's very easy for me to be really present because of people like you. Hmm. You don't have to pretend or try to work at it. It just is easy. Hmm. But it is true. I don't want to do anything in the evenings because I just need this. <laughs> so when I went to this fantastic exhibition, which... Oh, was yeah. mind blowing. I thought, oh, I'm not going to have enough alone time <laughs> just to balance before I get here. But so at the same, I feel the same actually. When you get home, you're exhausted because you, yeah, you are around so many good people all the time. So much energy. So much yeah. energy. Yeah, really, and for me as well. And to sort of recharge mm -hmm. and be in that space and look forward to the next day. So now I'm thinking, instead of thinking, how am I going to last? I'm thinking, how how am I going to cope when I'm not here? <laughs> <laughs> so it's a bit of a switch. I hadn't expected that. But you're always welcome here. Oh, yeah. thank you. Cool. Thank you. Have a fika. Yeah. Yes. You have to let me know when things are happening. That's what you have <laughs> to do. And anyway, I'm soon going to be the dorm mom. Yes, of yep. course. We need to, I think we've created a concept here. Or you created a concept. Yeah, absolutely. We'll, yeah. we'll fundraise it. Yeah. Or something. We'll try it. Yeah. Totally. Get money. Get money. Mm. We, we, you know, it doesn't have to be a new building. Just get an old building and a real wreck. You know, and you guys will redo it. I mean, look at what you could do in just three weeks. Yeah. yeah. To get some months and put together an old building and we move in. Uh, yeah. It would be fun. <laughs> it would be really fun. <laughs> and we have a lot of people that are perhaps going to be, I don't know, volunteering. Well, so. Yeah, volunteers, and mm. we'll have all sorts of 
talk shops and mm. with ourselves mm. and issues. And I have a couple of what I think are really big world projects that I just think that you at Hyper Island would be the people to really make those changes. I mean, mm. I think they're borderline impossible, but I think for what, it seems like here nothing is impossible. Mm. So just you wait what we're <laughs> going to do once we get into this project. <laughs> and now we've taped it as well. So thank you so much. I'm Nora. I'm we Carl. have Carl. And I'm Eileen. And uh, this is the Hyper Talks podcast uh, of uh, Digital Business Program 2016. And we're all checking out. Check out. Check out. <laughs> Check out. <laughs> Hyper Talks.